Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Will Horton, and today I'm going to talk about addictions, how to change your relationship with alcohol and drugs without pain, especially in this time of COVID and high stress. It's my pleasure to do this, and as always, I look forward to hearing from you if you have any questions or want anything else. And if you have any questions, you can go to nfnlp.com, that's the organization I work with, or Dr. Will at RealNLP for Twitter, I'm on Instagram. TikTok, Facebook, you could find me, or drwillhorton.com. So here we go. So today I want to go over addictions, trauma, and COVID, how it all relates. I want you to ask yourself these questions as we get started. How can I use this info today on myself and other people? What can I learn new today? If some of the information's old, what can I learn new that's a little bit different, right? How can I have fun today? When I'm learning this, when I'm doing this, when I'm taking other classes, how can I have fun? And generally, how can I be a better person today? So I want you to realize that when it comes to alcohol and drugs, sometimes it's not your fault. It's not your fault or anyone's fault if they fall into the trap of, of substance abuse or sub substance addiction, because we've been set up to fail by our neurology, our society, and sometimes our families. It's just the way that it is. Right. And the truth is, it doesn't just hurt the alcoholic or the drug addict. It hurts the friends and the family, whether it's children, things like that, co-workers, people you know, it hurts everyone around you. Now, let me stress that I've done a lot of things right over the years. Right. Um, as I've gotten into this, it's been over 35 years since I've been doing the NLP and the hypnosis. And I originally started as an alcohol and drug counselor. My story is once I, I had a problem with alcohol and drugs, mainly alcohol, I, it took away a military career, took away my acting career. And then when I started to uh, sober up and got some help, um, and NLP and hypnosis was a part of it, I um, started studying, I've been studying ever since, got, you, you know, became the world's, one of the world's leading trainers of NLP and hypnosis, the world's leading trainer for sure, and using NLP and hypnosis to treat addictions. I went ahead and got my doctorate in clinical psychology, and I'm a psychologist, and so I've been doing that. So I've done some things right, and you know, I had a lot of uh, alcohol drug counselor counseling experience uh, from day one, even when I ran all kinds of clinics. Uh, now I've done a lot of things wrong over the years, to be honest with you. And so I'm going to share both of those so you don't have to make the same mistakes. And after doing this for over 35 years, I've I found that, first of all, treatment's not really changed in over 60 years. And generally, the therapeutic community and even the hypnosis and NLP community blames clients for what I would call bad treatment because a one size fits all is not good, right? We have to be adaptable on the fly. Let's talk a little bit about is it a bad habit or is it an addiction? Well, Dr. Wendy Wood of USC says about 45% of our life actions are habits. You don't think about them. The way you drive your car, the way you do things, how you approach things, it's just a habit, right? It's an action that at one time, how you decided to do it, and now you do it without thinking, right? And it's these things just take on a life of their own. Now, most of your habits are what I would call pre-conscious. You could change them, you could think about them, but mostly they just go into autopilot. You know, uh, I always think about if you always took one direction, let's say, say to your job, and then you change jobs and you find yourself some days without thinking about it, halfway to your old job before you realize you're on, 
you know, that you've changed. That's what I mean by preconscious. Now, the good side about any kind of habit is it frees up your brain to do other things, right? When you're driving your car, you could be thinking about work, thinking about what you got to do later, planning your workout, whatever it is you got to do, right? The downside is it's hard to break a habit, right? And it's, uh, many people say it takes 21 days to make or break a habit. Au contraire, that's not true. You can make a habit very quickly, or sometimes you can do an action over and over and over again, and it never really becomes a habit. You'll learn about that later on. So it can be hard to break, right? Now, Dr. Ann Graybill, she's a professor at MIT. She says, our brains seem to be wired to seek some near optimality of cost and benefit. What that means is your brain wants to be efficient. So it's going to do things in an efficient way. Habits help you do that. You don't have to think about it. You know, you don't have to think about every time. Hands at 10 o'clock, if you're driving a car, 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Look at the rearview mirror. Check it. You do it without thinking, right? So what happens when you're learning something, the first few rounds, there's high brain activity you're thinking about. If you think again about when you learn to drive, you, you had to consciously think about it, right? But after you learn it, it could be several rounds. Um, and there's some factors that how quickly you can make a habit. But once it becomes that, then what happens is you start it, then your brain slows down. You're not thinking about it. Your brain's on autopilot, right? And so we have to be able to reset some of these things. So which is it? Is it a habit or is it an addiction? Well, let's just, to me, that's semantics. It's if you have something you're doing that you want to change that you can't change easily, that's that's where this comes in. But habits are a good servant, but they're a horrible master, right? It's But it's the invisible structure of our daily lives, right? And once, once it becomes a habit, any kind of behavior or process, it doesn't require a decision from you. And what that does is it eliminates the need for self-control. And again, this is where if it goes into things like alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, things we call uh, maladaptive, um, the self-control is taken out. You know, and it's best to begin with habits that if you want to change is find habits that strengthen your self-control and change the habits that take away from self-control, like alcohol, drugs, food, whatever it happens to be, right? Now, again, after doing this for 30, over 35 years, treatment's not really changed. They, traditional treatments for alcohol and drugs, they dry you out, they clean you up, they run you through some, I call therapy, if you want to call it that, because there's no same standardization. Even sometimes within a facility, each counselor may be doing things differently. And then they'll send them to a 12-step program. Um, and if it doesn't work, we blame clients for bad treatment, right? And again, it's not a one-size-fits-all model, right? And uh, some people like certain parts of it, so, uh, the 12-step, the things like that. Uh, and so it's a lot of interesting information. And now I want to talk a little bit about routine, rituals, and habits. When I said, you know, it might take longer to make a habit, right? Is it a routine, a ritual, or does it become a habit, right? The military um, has a saying, Right? And the Navy says it, shiny shoes save ships, right? When a new, um, usually commanding officer, executive officer, or uh, command master chief comes on the boat, or first sergeant in the Army, commander in the Army, uh, they, they want to check their uh, soldiers or sailors' shoes. Are they shiny? Because that has to do with discipline. Do they do it without thinking? Or do they have to be, do they have to be yelled at constantly, right? And habits become second nature. 
right? My bird may be screaming in the background, right? Uh, and again, it goes over time, right? And if it goes to the next level, like with an addiction, it's a self-generating reward system, right? Now, what happens, let's say I, I use alcohol because it's the most abused uh, when it comes to addiction than anything. Everybody thinks of like uh, the opioid crisis all over the world, but actually more people are gonna buy, die from alcohol abuse within 30 days than die from all the other drugs combined in over a year, right? So what happens when people decide to stop drinking? Maybe you've done this, right? You go, but most people try in vain to stop. I'm just not gonna drink. And they do really well till they don't, right? So, so they'll go to traditional treatment or therapy, maybe a rehab, maybe an outpatient treatment, right? And it, does it work? R results are mixed, right? Or they, they go, I'm gonna just use my willpower. I have a strong will and you do, but when it comes to this, it's not gonna work. You'll go to a 12-step program. I'm a big advocate of the 12-step program. You'll find out why later, right? But it may not work for everybody. And some people reach out to alternative practitioners, hypnotists, NLPers, uh, Reiki practitioners, EFT, the list goes on and on, right? Uh, and when it comes to an addiction, however, it's like you have an, it, an itch, it's a need. And what an addiction is, whether uh, alcohol, drugs, smoking, food, sex, gambling, it's a way to release that need. And some people would say, and I kind of follow along this, is that it's a trauma response. And in many cases, when it first starts, it's socially acceptable, right? You're drinking too much. Um, you'll, I have a model for this. You'll learn in a little while, right? Uh, you're in high school. You're in college. You're in the military. You're a young person. Yeah, it's socially acceptable. And it's intermittent reward, right? The addiction is intermittent. You'll go out and you'll have a few drinks. You'll have a great time. Next time you'll go out, you have a great time. Then you go out and you do bad, right? You wreck your car, things go bad. But then you go out again and things go wrong. So it's intermittent reward. You never quite know what's going to happen. And that's why people gamble. It's why people do what they do, right? And then it's easy to become invested in it, right? You become a connoisseur of wine or beer or liquor or pot or whatever it happens to be. And it, there's cycles that go on with dopamine and all these chemicals in your brain. Right. And yeah, and we begin to blend these things in our brain. Now, you got to remember your brain's main job is to keep you alive. And the first thing it's always doing is searching for a threat. Right. And when that threat is activated, you're going to look for a way to calm down. Right. Now, I always say it's like there was a study done. And we, I call it the happy rat study. And they took some rats, and this is where our zero tolerance for alcohol and drugs came from. They took some rats, they hooked them on certain substances, right? And then what they would do is they would take a rat, and it would be hooked on the substance. It would be in this little cage, and there's the, 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 the heroin and the water or cocaine or alcohol, whichever one it was. And then they would, like usually a male rat, and then they'd throw in a female rat that would be in heat. The male rat that was hooked wouldn't even pay any attention wouldn't avoid would, food would, no, all it would do is keep using, keep using, keep using, right? And so we started to say like, somehow it's the, it's the drug, it's the alcohol, right? Well, there was a flaw in that study. And what it was is rats are very social creatures, right? And what they found was when they duplicated the study, <clears throat> excuse me, when they duplicated the study, they got rats hooked. 
But rather than just throw in better food or throw in a female, right? They would take the rat out of the unhappy rat cage and move it over to a happy rat cage where there's lots of rats and stuff to do and food and this. And all the rats stopped using the substance that they were addicted to before, right? So some of it is in the context of where you are. And you're going to hear a cool story about this in just a little while, right? And we know now they duplicated the study again where the rats would seek the addictive substance while they're in the unhappy rat cage, even if there was a shock plate that would shock them all the way up to and up to death, right? They would still be trying to get there, even though they were being shocked so bad they were about to die. And that's why negatives do not stop the behavior. We've seen people get DUI, another DUI, another DUI. They lose a job. They get a divorce. And they keep drinking or drugging or gambling or whatever it is, job loss, jail, right? And weight can have some of the same issues, right? So sometimes we say, if they just suffer the consequences, they'll stop. Oh, contraire. No, they won't, right? You have to make some changes at a different level, right? And I, this is where I came up with what I call the levels. And again, if my rat, if my rat, my, my bird screams, I apologize. Um, but it's one of the things that makes my rat cage happy here. Uh, people go through levels and just follow me on this. And this explains a lot of, of what we're doing. So people that when they're born, they're tabula rusa. They, they don't drink, they don't drug, they don't do certain things, right? Because, it, you know, it may be around you, your parents, people around you, but you're not doing it. great. So they don't use, right? And then they move into the phase, usually in adolescence, where they're going to experiment with drugs or alcohol. Now, even though every parent might say, not my kid, kids are going to experiment in drugs or alcohol. Now, some people, when they experiment, they'll try it. They'll go, I don't like this feeling, and I'm not going to do it anymore. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't like this. I don't like... So they don't... They go back to being the never use, the abstinent group, right? Now, most people, after they experiment, will go into the social use group, right? So you go from abstinence to <clears throat> experiment, and then you... If you experiment and you like it, you go into the social use phase. Or if you experiment and you don't like it, you go back to abstinence. But most people socially drink or drug. You know, they can drink, they cannot drink. It's no big deal, right? Uh, and that's and I'm not saying they might not get drunk every once in a while or get really too high or do stupid things. It's just they can take it or leave it. They don't think about it all the time. It doesn't rule their life. You know, if they go to a party and there's nothing there, they don't get all. They're not upset about it. They don't obsess about a drink, right? Now, what happens next is some people go into the abuse phase where drinking, and I use drinking, becomes a habit, you know? And it could be good or bad, right? It could be like, um, I use the uh, a, a bad one, you lose a loved one, so you're in depression, so you're drinking too much, or you get a divorce and you're upset, so you're drinking too much, right? Uh, you get, you're in the military and you don't, you're deployed somewhere you don't like, um, that, you know, they, there's that whole uh, thing. So you're drinking, right? And in fact, this is where the, the Vietnam experience in the United States ties into uh, what we're talking about, right? Because in when, when the soldiers, sailors, air, airmen, and Marines, when they went to Vietnam, it was an unhappy place to be, right? wasn't a popular war. When you came back, you didn't get thank you for your service. Uh, 
And so since it was a negative place, an unhappy cage, uh, people were drinking a lot. And plus it was in, you know, Southeast Asia, right next to the uh, triangle, they call it for like op opium and hashish and all this. So soldiers and sailors, airmen, Marines were using a lot, right? Um, and if they didn't drink, they are used like drugs, they drank a lot, right? Because the military brought that in. And so the government was gearing up for a big problem because they didn't separate abuse from addiction. So they said, when these soldiers come back, what are we going to do with them? There's all these young men that, by the way, we've trained in weapons and, you know, they're soldiers uh, and they're coming back with alcohol and drug problems. It's going to be horrible. Right. And so what happened was when they got back, yes, there was an adjustment phase, but not almost all, like 90 something percent of the people adjusted back into society. They came out of the unhappy rat cage and went into the rat cage with if they were if they liked where they were from, let's say, and they had a job and a girlfriend or boyfriend and they could get back into life. Most of them went back to normal. They went back to social using, went against everything we thought about addictions. Right. Um, and so it could be that, or it could be like a kid goes away to college and gets into a fraternity or it's a girl goes to fraternity and they drink a lot. So your, your grades slip and you're in trouble a little bit. So there's negative stuff, but you're partying and then you graduate college and you get out and you get a job, you might get married and you go and you go back to normal. You go back to the social use phase, you know, and again, trust me, I, you know, a few years ago. A decade or so ago, I wouldn't believe this was possible, but we see it all the time. But a small subsection of the people that abuse, let's say, booze or, or drugs, they go into the addiction phase. They can't stop, right? And I always say it's like the 40-year-old frat boy, right? It's the um, person that just can't quit. They keep, they keep drinking, right? They, and nothing stops it. The, you know, getting in trouble, getting in jail, all this other stuff. So, and in fact, for those people, they think there's a genetic base of it, that they, their body actually responds differently to the drugs and the alcohol than those that don't, right? Now, and I stress this, many professionals are stuck in the abuse phase. They're using it to self-medicate, maybe to feel better, maybe to, you know, take the things down, whatever it is, right? And so we see this. And again, education, smarts, experience, you know, most people with drugs, drug and alcohol problems are very, a lot of them are highly functional, very successful in parts of their lives. You know, that's why, you know, it's like every once in a while we'll see, um, and then people act shocked when a celebrity overdoses or goes into rehab and you're like, that doesn't, just because they're good looking and talented and successful, that's not a, 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 a vaccine against what this stuff will do for you, to you. So, you know, that's the levels, right? Now, if you hit the addiction level, right? Now, if you're in the abuse level, if you come out of that unhappy place, maybe with therapy, maybe with going to some meetings, maybe doing some hypnosis or NLP, you'll go back and you'll be normal. You may, and many people, when they stop, after the abuse phase, they just go, you know, it's really not worth it. I'm not going to do it anymore. And again, there's also that little magic thing that a lot of people age out of drinking or drugging, you know, because again, what's cool in your 20s and 30s becomes kind of sad in your late 40s and 50s, right? So many people just kind of age out naturally, right? And so it's just something to think about, right?
And again, this is where we get into the, you know, the, the levels in the happy rat study, right? Where, you know, people get into this, they're, they're stuck and they're in an unhappy place. And again, when you look at people uh, where high addiction is, is, is rampant, I'll just use America, of course, uh, where like the opioid epidemic and everyone forgets that, uh, especially during COVID, alcohol sales are up way over 30%, right? They're, it's just, it's been through the roof. And when they shut everything down in every state and province in Canada, liquor stores were considered essential services. Kind of interesting, right? But when you look at, especially let's look at the opioid epidemic, you know, it's in areas of the country where people are unhappy. The job, the factories are closing, the, the mines are closing, you know, the, your grandfather worked at the factory, your father worked there, and you always thought you would work there. You worked there a little while to close the factory, offshore the jobs. And now you got, you know, the job that was, you could work and support your your family on a one, you know, one paycheck is gone. And so you, you're self-medicating. It's unhappy. You don't want to be there, right? As opposed to where um, it's it seems to be a little bit lower is in some of the affluent areas. But we also have to realize in the affluent areas, and people with with means, uh, they might overdose, but the death certificate rarely says drug overdose, alcohol overdose, right? Oh, it was heart attack, depression, liver failure, because you know they they have their own doctor that will sign off on it, right? And so, you know, is it a, a disease of connection? When you're in an unhappy place, you really can't connect with other people. Some of this may be based in trauma, right? Uh, because trauma stops the connection with other people and activates the genetic code that keeps addiction flowing one after another after another. So it's something you want to think about, right? So the medical model separates mind-body. The body's a machine, a thing. The mind is separate, right? Fix the body, the machine, with surgery, drugs, or dry you out, put you in, in detox, and then just say no, Right? And the, in the medical model, logical is paramount. This will kill you. Don't do it anymore. That's okay. Bye. See ya. And then when you, you know, it doesn't work, right? So then we have the psych model. And I can say the hypnosis model, which is your conscious mind and your subconscious mind. Now, it's a little better, right? But it still doesn't explain treatment-resistant trauma or addictions, right? Because... Uh, you know, why do some people succeed and others not? It could be based in some of these things, right? And so you have to realize, basically, let's take it one level further. You actually have three minds, right? It's the called it's called the tricameo mind, right? You have your reptilian brain, your mammalian brain, which is where most people think you're conscious and your subconscious. Your reptilian brain is more subconscious. You go on autopilot. It's it's there to keep you alive. And you have your mammalian brain, which is you know. Uh, next level thought then you have your highest brain which is your social brain right now we're always operating at all these three but if you're stuck in the mammalian or the reptilian brain bad habits and addictions maintain through time now some of the things that happen are beyond words this is where therapy will not fix some of this stuff on the inside right and there's no words for it when we talk to somebody let's say they had they dried out and they had some sobriety and then they relapse, you ask him why, what happened? I, I don't know, there's no words for it. That means there's something going on, yes, even deeper than your subconscious mind, right? 
So, you know, in, in our highest brain is where we need to be, right? But your highest brain, its main job is constantly trying to help you figure out, are you safe? Are you secure? You know, and an interesting way to look at it in the hypnosis and LP world, we talk about the um, reticular activating system, the part of your brain that, you know, its main job is keep you alive. It'll spot the tiger, the bear, the lion. If you're in combat, it'll notice things, right? Well, since we don't use it that much, it kind of does other things, right? So if you ever want a new car and you go, oh, I want a BMW, suddenly you'll see BMW everywhere. Whatever kind of person you find attractive, you'll see that person, right? But also, too, then if you have a bad habit, like let's say drinking, you'll notice where every bar is. You'll notice what people are drinking, right? Uh, because your brain's telling you this is important. It will find it for you, right? And then it'll also find reasons for you to drink, right? Oh, I'm depressed. I'm I'm bored. They've locked me down. I can't work out. I can't do this. So I'm going to drink, right? So we need to come out of that part of our brain. And that's the hard part, to be in the part of our brain that keeps us happy, right? And so an addiction is an escape from pain, right? Now, you need some motivation to do anything, right? It's not that you know we need to be moving toward a goal or away from pain, right? So we want to stay active and we want to do things. We want to activate our sympathetic nervous system. That's what gives us our get up and go, right? And again, we're relationship creatures, right? And when you're stuck in this, there's no way out, right? And when you're in a stress state or an addiction state, it makes it almost impossible to cultivate powerful, strong, authentic relationships with other people, right? And this, if you don't have those, this affects your mental health, your emotional health, your mental health, your spiritual health, right? So if you're in this bad part of your uh, nervous system, you know, you, you can't relate to friends, family members, coworkers, like you could have in the past or would like to, right? And the thing you need to heal, connection, becomes fearful. They're going to steal from me. They're going to steal my ideas. Uh, they're going to end up getting rid of me anyway. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to break up with you before you break up with me. And again, things that should be pleasurable, hugging, intimacy, closeness becomes a source of threat and pain. And the only thing I will say is one of the most criminal things I saw come out of COVID was the loss of things like hugging, shaking hands, and that connection with other human beings, right? Again, it would keep the body alive but it let the soul kind of start to die, right? And again, when you get to these deep levels, um, it's not about changing beliefs or thoughts, right? These parts that we're accessing in your mind are four to 500 million years old. They don't know language exists. Words don't work. You can't have a rational conversation with it. This is where regression won't work, right? Uh, because there's no words that you can use. It's all about a, a felt sense is what most people call it. It's a feeling, a sense, a pressure. And this becomes a nervous block in your system. It's almost like a clogged drain, right? And it's also why therapy or NLP or hypnosis might work in the short term, especially for super bad habits and addictions, but then something will happen and it'll go back to old, right? You know, and so this is what your body's always waiting for that trigger, all right? So what you have to do is un unwind and release the stored st stress and trauma in the body. Your body's not a thing, 
right? It in fact in, interacts with your environment, with your consciousness, your subconsciousness, it's it, other people, their energy. And again, it's always sensing threats, right? And again, if you're in the existential threat mode, your reticular activating system keeps it up. And we've had two years of that with the with the pandemic. You know, it takes a toll on your nervous system, just like being in combat for a year will keep it. You know, it's it's overwhelming, right? Uh, all of this stuff is powerful, right? And if it's not processed out, it's stored. And that's what we would call post-traumatic stress disorder. And a lot of your addictions are stored there. And again, it's beyond words. It's it's impossible to, to release by talking about it, right? So you need to do something different. And again, unresolved trauma leaves emotional scars in your body, right? Because your brain stays in survival state. You're never caught. It's hard for you to be in the moment. Most of it, enjoy the moment, be in the moment. One of the brilliant things the 12 step program tries to does do is begin to train you to stay in the moment, right? Don't be in, don't be in tomorrow. Don't be in last week, right? Be in today, right? And if, you, if you're not, it feels like you're just going through the motions. You might make sure stuff gets done, but you're never fully present in your life. You're in an event and you're thinking about what you got to do later, right? And you get what they call a, a splintered soul, right? It's like it you become a zombie, right? Taken to the extreme, we see it with like the thousand yard stare. So we have to discharge this trauma and addiction, you know, and, and restore a felt sense of safety in there and safety with other people, whether it's with your, your therapist, whether it's with your family, whether it's with your 12-step group, that's what people don't understand. It develops a sense of connection, right? And these body states, when you're around other people that feel comfortable, like in a therapy session, in a 12-step um, meeting, right? It lets you become more present, centered, and relaxed, right? And again, it has to be stored. If it's stored in the body, it has to be re released from the body. You know, it's why we do a whole section on uh, polyvagal theory and how to get rid of, you know, and again, all your self-sabotage, whether it's addictions or bad habits, overeating, smoking, drinking, however you want to describe it, it might be a, a post-traumatic stress dis disorder response, right? And it's just trying to keep you safe. I'm going to blow this relationship up because they're going to break up with me anyway, then I'll be hurt. So I'm going to blow it up, right? I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to destroy this business. Right. And that's the clog in your nervous system. It doesn't let you go down and really connect. You also, this is where the imposter syndrome seems to be. Even though you're very good at what you do, you feel like you're a fake. Right. And again, it's going to manifest as addictions, depression, anxiety, stress. Um, right. And remember, these when you're in this negative state, if you're it can be passed into your genetic code and it becomes a genetic activator. If you're gen genetically predisposed to an addiction and these stress states hit your body, it's gonna activate. Just like you might be genetic genetically predisposed to become diabetic, but if you don't eat a lot, many times you eat a healthy diet and you're exercising that, it's never gonna manifest, right? You know, but then the other people, if you do the, if you do the bad diet and you don't exercise, the genetic predisposition for diabetes will take off, right? They've they've done that with studies of, you know, like family members that diabetes runs through it. Well, these the, these kids didn't get it. Well, what's the difference? They eat healthy, they exercise. They never activated that genetic code. 
So it's something to think about. And I want you to ask yourself, are you stuck? Because before you work on helping other people, are you stuck? Because many business professionals, almost everybody I've worked with personally, is a business or a medical or psych professional. So we see it, right? Again, success does not stop you from having this problem. And it could be medical, psych, pros, you know, NLPers, hypnotists. They have substance abuse issues. I see it at conferences. I see it in places I go, right? But again, it's the paradox of knowledge. They think they can fix themselves, but you can't think yourself out of a thinking problem, as I always say. So if you're drinking or using more than you intend, that's the paradox of knowledge. You may need some outside help. So just get help before it's too late. Then learn the steps to help other people. Don't jump in starting helping other people until you really help yourself, if that's you, right? And only you can answer that question, right? And again, the addiction doesn't just hurt the addict or the alcoholic, right? It's family members, friends, coworkers, society. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? So if you're going to do this, I have to tell you, and I tell everyone this, is you have to dare to be different, right? You have to basically bear your butt at times, right? And what I mean by that is if you're not going to drink or use in the current culture, the Western culture, you're... People look at you funny, like, why don't you? Oh, well, it's been all these years. You could have a beer if you wanted one. Never said I couldn't have a beer. I'm not going to have a beer, right? I don't want one, right? And if I don't feel good or I don't feel mentally fit, I don't go to parties or things when I'm at a conference. I don't judge, but I realize, hmm, this is kind of interesting. It takes guts to be a person that doesn't drink or use in our society. That, to me, just a statement of fact, Right? So again, you know, business professionals, you know, medical professionals, psych professionals, they have this. So if you're, if you need some help, reach out, right? Uh, you can always contact me, Dr. Will Horton at gmail.com. Uh, but have the guts uh, to do what you need to do. And again, then study the next steps on addiction and how to help people with addiction, right? And for most of us as hypnotists and NLPers, you know, a couple of sessions, I always do like, you know, it's like you can you can help somebody and they move on. Because again, even in the addiction model, going back to like the uh, the levels model, if they're just abusing and you kind of get them to go into a happy place, right? And you help them reframe their family, their work, things like that. They may just naturally slide out of it, right? And again, that's your job is to take them there. But if they're stuck, and they can't get out of that, then you have to have some addiction things. You have to understand how to treat the trauma, like polyvagal theory, um, how, how the 12-step program really works, all of that stuff. So that's what I wanted to share with you today. Reach out if you have any questions. It's one of my joys to share this information. Again, my bird screamed a couple of times. I apologize. Uh, but that's what makes my happy cage, uh, the animals and things like that. So I look forward to seeing you as we explore the road in the future, again, reach out. Um, thank you and have a great day.